I want to add to something you just said. Yeah, please. Another way that we connected and why you were attracted to my practice is when you first came in, I had a dog in the treatment room. <laughs> it's true. So, so there is this part of what's the mechanics of acupuncture. This dog started working with me in 2002 and went all the way to 2015. Right. She really picked up on what people were going through, their mm -hmm. nervous systems. And she would calm people immediately. One of her great angles on helping people was that big dog out-breath song. Yes. Which, from underneath the treatment table, she couldn't help but reset everyone with that. Shit. Can I call it? Do mm -hmm. I call it? Mm -hmm. Hi, Grandma. Yeah, how are you? Well, so, do you want to play, Grandma? You want to play that part from Measure 9? Yep. Hello, fellow shit sisters and siblings. A Reverend Rachel here. Today, I'm interviewing Doctor of Acupuncture Claire McManus, who will provide all you exhausted elder caregivers with her expert self-care advice. We talk about the benefits of strategically placed needles, death cafes, meditation apps, and laughter. Speaking of which, stay tuned to the end for a hilarious speed round featuring some of Claire's more exotic clients. Before I introduce you to my doctor and dear friend Claire, let me gesture cap why this monthly podcast exists. After accumulating 10 years and counting of elder care intel, I decided to create my irreverent empire of insights, anecdotes, and audio, all found on my website, thisisgettingold.com, just add some dashes, in order to support the undertakings of you, my fellow shit sisters and siblings. The purpose of my monthly podcast is to provide empathy and education about the start, middle, and end of the elder care trenches, and to remind each other why we're all gathered here together, I start each episode with a grandma cameo. Because this month's conversation is so full of goodness from Claire, we'll just check in on grandma by way of two short voicemails. They help bookend our scene squarely between the time of year we remember the dead which at the time of the second message, we didn't know was about to include my Uncle Bill, and the end of November, also known as National Family Caregivers Month. Hi, this is Grandma calling for Asher, just to say happy Halloween. So I hope you're having a wonderful time. Take pictures so I can see what you look like. All right. Good night. Hi, Rachel, just your mother calling. I talked to Linda. Your Uncle Bill is not doing well. Some form of, it's like a pancreatic cancer. Or anyway, just let you know. We'll talk to you later sometime. All right, bye-bye. And now it's time to return to our regularly scheduled broadcasting. I today am offering up a conversation with not only a dear, 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 dear friend, but somebody who's super experienced, nuanced, has a ton of perspective on every angle for caregivers and elders and the dying process and the post-death process. And so I'm very excited to dig into all sorts of topics with my friend, Claire McManus. Claire is a doctor of acupuncture. And I would have met you exactly what year was that when I was sitting crying in your office for the first time? Six plus years ago. Does that sound right to you? Six or seven, I think. Yeah. Yes. I had a toddler. 
I was halfway through a 10-year and still going journey of elder care, and I had just gone to a local masseuse. Oh, yeah. Actually, there's another thing I wanted to mention. Yeah. When you talk about masseuse, Mm -hmm. it's actually massage therapists. Yes, because otherwise it's like sex. Yeah, exactly. And I went to them twice in one week, and they finally said, your pain is not muscular, so you need to go to an acupuncturist. And I said, acu-what? I had never been to one of these mysterious people before. And I showed up in your office, and you took one look at me, and you said, you are in constant fight-and-flight mode. And I said, that sounds about right. (laughs) So, Claire, before we dig into our history together, I would like you to explain who you are out in your world, how you became what you became, why you became what you became, because I think that matters in terms of the personal passion you bring to your work, but also why people might choose to go to somebody like you, and what it means to be Dr. Claire McManus of acupuncture. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) Well, before I was a doctor of acupuncture, I was actually a farmer up in Vermont. And I, yeah, this is about (laughs) 25 years ago. And I taught science on farms. I wanted to get into medicine in some form. I wanted to get into women's health. I thought I was going to go the nurse practitioner, midwife way. And I actually sought care from an acupuncturist in Southern Vermont. And I got so interested in how helpful the treatment was and the amount of time the practitioner had with me Mm -hmm. and also her insights on what was going on. And in fact, I was going for allergies and asthma. And I just thought, well, you see these mysterious acupuncturists and they find a point for allergies and asthma and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Let's find out. And she started to ask me about everything. How do I sleep? What do I eat? What stress? Does anything else hurt? Mm -hmm. And I learned that the body holds grief in the lungs. That's our philosophy Mm. in Chinese medicine. And if you look at physiologic changes in the body, it makes a lot of sense. When you're deeply grieving, your lungs constrict various neurohormone levels change, your heart rate will change. So once she opened that up for me, I was like, well, actually, you know, I lost a parent as a child. I'm hanging on to all this stuff. And it just, the whole thing made sense for me. And the whole thing as a farmer made sense because I started to learn that the body is a landscape. So Hmm. we're either run really hot, we run really cold, we run really damp. Maybe we're the person that moves a little bit slower Maybe our thyroid hormones are off, or maybe we're that person, you know, you can picture her rapidly smoking a cigarette and the whole landscape of her body is dried Hmm. out because she's real thin. And, and as an acupuncturist, we can tell that just by feeling your pulse and looking at your tongue and doing an interview. I, I just formed this love for this medicine because it was like farming to me. Oh my God. This is where you hear me say in all my podcasts, my brain is going a million places. First, I just want to say, so I don't forget to say it. You precisely described why I have been with you now for six years, going at a three to four week cadence, and it is not only some of the best self-care I've ever experienced, but I will never not do it because I think I, like many other people, you know, the joke with acupuncture is tons of needles stuck in you and you look like a porcupine and 
in Saturday Night Live skits, you bleed out and ha ha ha. But the day I walked into your office, I had the same experience you just described. You were asking me about everything, about parts of myself and things that were happening to me and aspects about my emotions and psychology. It was the whole enchilada. And I had never understood that about your practice. So Claire, I have a sense having talked to you over time about your current profession and your farm experience, but tell my listeners how those two things went together for you. Well, I think the other thing that informs this medicine, which comes out of a East Asian cultural tradition, is that there's a cycle to everything. There's a cycle to life. And people who garden, people who farm, witness that cycle every single day. We're born, we age, we die. This is truth. And I think in our culture here in North America, we don't really talk about the dying part much. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're pretty quick to, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know, and then sort of walk away and not mm-hmm. deal with it at all. So the fact that here's a form of medicine that has a different way of talking about changes in the body as opposed to calling things atrophy or d- depression and just to give them names that indicate change mm-hmm. spoke to me from my point of view in farming. That's amazing. So what did I do? I left the farm. I came to Boston. I got a master's in acupuncture at the New England School of Acupuncture, which is part of Mass College of Health and Pharmacy now. And then I went on to get a doctorate in acupuncture. I also um, spent over a decade doing research in acupuncture. We all see these pictures of the acupuncture doll with the the little lines, stripes on the lines on them. They line up with connective tissue. And One of the ways I get people to visualize connective tissue, you just think about a bag of onions that you buy, that mesh bag that holds it all together. Think about this tissue is holding all of your muscles together, Mm -hmm. but it's also the signaling system that is the highway that sends the signals from your muscles to your brain, to your heart. So we can insert a little needle and send a little message just by twisting that needle into the fascia. We can also press on it. It also picks up light changes. Some people might use lasers on these networking systems. So Claire, everything you just described, you and I, we don't have a ton of time before and after our sessions to talk, and yet we squeeze in a fair number of topics. (laughs) But what I deeply appreciate about the description you just provided is you have named to me that you are partnered with a husband who works in more traditional medical fields. So what you bring to the table is a complete willingness to look across all fields and bring to your practice the complementary understanding of them. So you just described connection and experience within research in Harvard and traditional descriptions of medicine than I think most people might expect when they hear acupuncture and needles and all that fun stuff. And again, that's been my experience with you is the depth and breadth of your body knowledge and your knowledge across all aspects of the human existence, quite frankly, is just profound. And so while I goof that one of the reasons I think acupuncture is so successful for me is because I go to somebody who does stand-up comedy on the side and it's hilarious. And what middle-aged mother gets to just lie on a table for an hour at any other part of their day? So I like those two parts. But everything that you just described is what I very overtly experience in terms of my self-care regimen and how it was, quite frankly, the only thing that 
brought me back to some level of physical, emotional, psychological sanity in the middle of all my stuff. So I continue to appreciate that. I want to add to something you just said. Yeah, please. I think another way that we connected and why you were attracted to my practice is when you first came in, I also had a dog in the treatment room. (laughs) It's true. So, So there is this part of what's the mechanics of acupuncture? What's the whole person? When you talked about the whole enchilada, I thought I should rename my practice whole enchilada. It's a holistic whole enchilada practice. But there's also who are we and what do we connect on? And and having a dog in the treatment room, this was sort of pre the time period where everybody had a therapy dog. This dog was indeed a therapy dog. But Are you throwing shade at everybody who's now doing the therapy oh, dog thing? I, yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess I did. But I, I, I guess that was shade, but also just saying it was very unusual. Yeah. I mean, this dog, this dog started working with me in 2002 and went all the way to 2015. Right. And because I think she knew she had a purpose and her purpose was she really picked up on what people were going through, their mm-hmm. nervous systems. And she would calm people immediately. And if she weren't there one day, even though Clearly, the dog never spoke. I mean, yeah, <laughs> should say that she did not speak. Uh, people would say, "Well, it's very quiet here without her." Oh. And I think one of her great angles on helping people was that big dog out breath song, yes. which, which, from underneath the treatment table, when you're coming in and you're taking off your shoes and you're telling me about your commute to my office, she couldn't help but reset everyone with that. Exactly. And it's actually really important. You started out by saying you came to me because you were fight or flight. And the opposite of fight or flight is rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And you hear about yin yang in Chinese medicine. It's the same as these two parts of our nervous system. We have a sympathetic nervous system that will rile us up when we are about to step off the curb. And oh my God, a truck's coming and the adrenaline and the noradrenaline and the cortisol pump. And then we have a parasympathetic nervous system, which brings us back down when all is clear. Now, in this culture, looking at our phones, going through the city, turning on the news, dealing with our elderly, sick parents or spouse or kids, we are in fight or flight all the time. Mm -hmm. And we can't break out of it. But when we look at a dog who doesn't have the same stressors we have, one minute they're in fight or flight, I'm going to bark at the UPS person, (laughs) woof, 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 short, shallow breath. The next minute UPS is gone and I'm fine. And it's a reset. And it's a really important reset as humans for us to know, because I think you have a dog with you and that dog comes up to you all the time and does that sigh. They might not just be doing it for themselves. (laughs) They might be saying, hey, I just completed a training in end of life care. And there were a lot of palliative care docs, oncologists, everything. And one of the guys in my cohort said he he was a palliative care doc. He said, I've heard it said that we share a nervous system. And you know how it feels to be around someone who's just stressed all the time, Mm. rapid breathing, rapid talking. And you know how it feels to just walk into someone's space and you're suddenly comforted because they're very, you know, you can say woo woo grounded or, but really (laughs) you're feeling that nervous system. So I, I think that these concepts of, am I in that fight or flight state or am I not? are really helpful when you are caregiving nonstop 24-7. And how can you get out of it? How can you get out of fight or flight? What are the things you can do if there's no 
acupuncture. You don't need an acupuncturist mm-hmm. to do this or a massage therapist. You need a little time and space and the ability to watch your breath and drop your shoulders. So let's dig into that because we're organically moving into as much as I want to talk about the formal practitioners like yourself and massage therapists who I've relied on for moments like this. They take time. They cost money, mm-hmm. neither of which in situations we're describing people often have. So I want to play with all of these little tips and tricks that you sprinkled on me over the years. And I'll back out of what you just said. So first we have to name the amazing Zuni, who is who you were just describing, who is your partner in your office. And it's exactly what you just explained to people. She was this beautifully shaggy dog who I think you said the human equivalent of uh, courtly love, I believe, was her... uh... (laughs) Oh, on the street, she was Courtney Love. For sure. she was, you know what? Because she was an alpha dog, I, which made her good at her role at work. But on the street, she was in charge. And I always imagined that if she had a cigarette, she'd throw it. <laughs> but in the treatment room, she was like Yoda. She right? totally she'd was. She'd cock her head. She had so much confidence to come up to you. Exactly. Look you in the eyes. You and know, very, very a confident still. dog. Exactly. Yeah. Very still, very slow moving, very calm. We orient to bully breeds, which are none of those things. (laughs) But what I can appreciate, and I know this about myself, but you're one of the few people that I would run in and say, like, Claire, check out this thing that I do that you're making me realize why I do it. So we let our dogs on the bed, which any dog trainer, we can debate the best practices of that. It's actually only the little one sleeps overnight. But now we have the puppy, the huge one-year-old boxer puppy. And Claire, in the very few times that I have some sort of sleep in ability or my husband and child are downstairs watching soccer and I'm just chilling out reading a book I expressly make a point of staying in bed with the two dogs for the very reason you describe because all it is is the sound of the birds a light breeze and two animals going (sighs) over and over again probably because I'm highly stressed and I need it (laughs) but I'm hyper hyper aware that I stay in bed to be around that physiological release, it makes me so present, present moment, because all I'm paying attention to is their smell, their breath, their warmth. So talk about stuff like that. Maybe start with when I would come in and I would do what I'm doing now and be like, Claire, so this happened at work and this happened at And you'd be like, Rachel, drop it, drop it. (laughs) (laughs) So start from that, that little. Well, yeah. So there's two things going on there. One, that drop it is that's a little meditation technique. You don't always have time to go find a meditation hall or an acupuncturist or massage therapist or, you know, body worker, but there are a ton of apps out there. My favorite is actually 10% Happier. I think because I do have this scientific bent, it's Dan Harris, who's a news anchor on ABC News. I think he called himself a fidgety skeptic. I think that might be his phrase (laughs) for himself. But he doesn't claim to be any kind of guru or teacher, but he does an incredible job of interviewing all these different teachers. He's he's got a great book about his experience, but the sort of cliff notes is he had a panic attack on the air. And he was like, oh my God, how am I going to keep doing my job? Mm -hmm. And a few people steered him towards meditation. And he went for it. And now I think he's fascinated by what is happening to our body? Like, this is real. Mm-hmm. And in, in the spirit of this is real, when you talked about being on your bed with these dogs, there are a lot of studies out there that talk about what happens when 
we're with animals, what happens mm -hmm. to our heart rate and our respiratory rate and our blood pressure. It's good stuff. So we could even come back to, and I won't get too sciencey, but what happens to our body when we're stressed? Mm -hmm. Number one, our muscles tense. Everybody has had that shoulder tightness, the shoulders and the ears. Then we have it on a respiratory level. You know, I talked about being short of breath or maybe, you know, we're stressed and we're grieving and it's exacerbating lung problems, mm -hmm. asthma or COPD. And then we have it on a cardiovascular level. Our heart rate goes up, the noradrenaline and adrenaline and cortisol, all those neurohormones increase this response of fight or flight. So that then becomes part of our endocrine system. And if that goes on for too long, then we start feeling really tired. We start getting metabolic disorders. We start gaining all this weight around our middles. And we're like, what's happening? Oh, that's why yes. I gain weight around my middle? Welcome cortisol. <laughs> yes. Damn it. And then our GI system goes off. You know, it's not just butterflies in your stomach. Like we start to change the bacteria in our gut. And we now know it's the gut bacteria that are producing a huge percentage of our serotonin hmm. that influences our mood. So our, you know, our esophagus might start to constrict or our GI motility slows down and we have acid reflux or ulcers or bowel changes. These are all conditions of being in a state of stress. So don't blame yourself for feeling this too because you are working and taking care of people. It's like, where can I get little breaks from this? Like 10% happier. I'm a big fan of Insight Timer. I probably it's told you when I first met you, Claire, that's the only thing that could help me sleep because I was so yes. manic at night. I'd have to put on a yoga nidra was what really helped me. Check out these apps. Insight Timer is free. Check out what people are highly rating and mm -hmm. just listen to it. And you know what? If it's a voice that reminds you of your crotchety neighbor or <laughs> weird music, then it's not for you. That's okay. You'll find the right person on there. Mm -hmm. There's there's someone for everyone on these apps. And I think they're essential to just turning off the outer noise. So let's continue to expand on the self-care part, what people can find that they can fit in alongside the edges of the intensity of elder care. And then we'll move ourselves into the elders themselves and the end of the process and how people, whether they're in it already or headed towards it, can orient to compassion and knowledge around hospice and end of life choices so they don't either have regrets or leave things on the table that can really be useful for both themselves and the elders. There's a ton of free apps out there. People do not need to spend money on any of this stuff. I've got probably a half a dozen that I dabble in at any given time. Sometimes I just blast the sound of ocean waves in my ears during the day <laughs> because it creates, I'm sure you can explain better than I do, that dog sigh sensation, that feeling of being yeah. at the beach. So just name, whether it's books or taking a walk or, or apps, what other free, accessible self-care things can people tap into? It might be both of those things, the books, the walk. But I think you want to make sure if you decide I'm going to take a walk that you're not using that time to plan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got to, you know, go to the pharmacy. That you really can check out. Take not Han says, wash the dishes to wash the dishes. Yeah, exactly. Take a walk to take a walk. Yeah, but it's hard. It's really hard. It's, we are wired now to be distracted all the time. So I, one of the easiest ways, if distraction is what you need to find positive distraction, is to go the laughter track. 
Mm. And I am biased. You're right. I did. <laughs> I was when are your pra- shows, Claire? They can come to practice. one of your shows. No, no, I don't currently go on stage. <laughs> I, I, but I used to do a lot of comedy writing and comedy performing and loved it. I mean, love that moment of getting up and the sheer, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And then changing <laughs> a room through joining together and getting people to laugh. Because laughter it's the cliche laughter is the best medicine but Mm -hmm. it's right on why does it feel good it boosts our endorphins we shake we lose control of our body our blood pressure goes down we relax it boosts our immune system our pain tolerance goes up if we're doing it with other people our relationships get closer Mm -hmm. it's for real when you think of the happiest times with your close friend or your loved one it's usually something that involved laughter and maybe if you are living alone with your dog it's your dog but i mean i laugh at my dog all the time so <laughs> it's true um, actually that's a good source of of mirth like i no joke all day long i replay our funny home dog videos to give myself a yeah. mental release and break and have you ever laughed so hard that you sobbed crying you oh my god yeah. you're laughing or crying that is a massive release for your lungs. Mm. So here our lungs are, especially in grief, and this is, again, comes from Chinese medicine, but also comes from some physiologic studies now. We know our lungs sort of start to constrict when we're grieving. If you've ever had that urge to have that really good sob, but you can't, mm. go watch something really funny. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking back many years ago, my mother, who had raised seven kids, had breast cancer. And I was checking in on her and she lived about 20 miles from me and she lived in a little town that didn't have cable or anything yet. She also, I have to say, with seven kids, I never saw my mother sit down to watch TV, except for days of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Which she still watches, but uh, she's not a person who sits still. At at 85, she still directs community theater and everything. So I called her one day and I thought we would have a nice conversation. And she said, oh, Claire, I can't talk. The Seinfelds are here. So my mother, in 2002, Seinfeld was in syndication, had finally discovered Seinfeld (laughs) and was watching it at 4.30 in the afternoon, 7.30 at night, 10.30 at night. Every time it was on, she was watching Seinfeld because she just needed to laugh. It just cracked me up because for her, the Seinfelds were there. Oh and my it was God. her moment to like turn it all off, turn off the stress of the treatment, turn off the stress of work and, and just laugh. I would also add if laughter is going to be your primary uh, medication, <laughs> I think you could boost its effectiveness by making sure you get enough sleep, mm. by exercising, just even 20 minutes, just getting your heart rate up a little bit, eating well, I know it's cliche, but it's so basic. Getting it plenty of water, getting plenty of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Like this is this stuff is all real. And it's so simple. And for the most part, it's free. Then finding social support. If, if there is a show that you're loving watching, even if you can't watch it with your friend now, say, hey, do you want to start watching Seinfeld with me? Oh. I know from the younger folk in my life that there are <laughs> ways you can watch things online together so you can see each other. I've seen this over the pandemic, all the college students who are like, oh, no, we're all watching a movie and their friends are in Philadelphia and Tampa. I am going to join you. And yes, it seems cliche. And yes, it seems hard in the moment. 
And I'm past the point. We only have two elders left. One's in California, so somebody will actively be managing her end of life. But we do have my mom, and I am actively managing 20,000 appointments all the time with her and near-death episodes. And I guess I'm realizing as I'm saying this that even though I feel like I'm no longer in that really immersive, intensive caregiver moment, that COVID has allowed me and reminded me to do everything you just said. I'm eating more thoughtfully than just grabbing and going in the middle of the office. I sit out on the back deck with my bearded dragon, which is the other creature that I like to sit with. (laughs) It was very calming because she just stares. <laughs> and there's something about giving a bearded dragon a bath, which is super soothing, I find. So little meals, I count to make sure I drink 10 huge glasses of water a day. I sit in the sun when I'm working from home. And like self-care has become non-negotiable because I've hit those moments in the 10 years of cycles where I just crash. I crash and burn. You've seen it happen with me. My back goes out. My sciatic flares up. I'm super stressed. I'm up in my kid's grill, etc. So it, it feels like you're asking a lot to do all those healthy things that we're told by doctors, etc. all day long, but it becomes necessary and it's free and it is easy. So I join you in emphasizing the little things. Okay, before we segue, the last time I was doing a podcast and the f***ing dog got locked in the room and whimpered the way he's doing, he then pissed all over the floor. So if you could give me one minute, (laughs) I'll make sure that's not going to happen. I'll be right back. I think he was mostly fretting about where the boys went, but it allowed me to get some toys, so hopefully they'll be chill. So if we shift ourselves, we're our caregiver, we're stressed, we're going to do some self-care, and now we're managing, at some point, the end of life. All the things that are attendant there, you've provided me with so many resources and websites and books around compassionate care, around hospice, around just end-of-life practices. So Claire, what? how would you like to segue into... All the offer, offerings that you've made me aware of, I'll give a sample that when I first showed you my website, you were just like, whoa, oh my goodness, something's off the top of my head. You talked about death cafes. You talked about death art. You talked about taking pictures of parent tattoos so that you can remember them, photographing the dying process, green funerals, on and on and on. I'm glad to say that I think each one of those is represented on my site because anytime you shared something with me, I was I was sure to advertise it to the newsletter and throw it up there. But of the things that you've either personally been involved in or aware of or educated me about, Claire, what would you want to share with the audience? Um, you know, it's funny. The first thing that comes to mind we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> You're just starting with the basics. You know, I'm going to start with the really basics. And actually, there's a meta meditation that talks about, you know, I, I, this is going to sound really dark. And it sounded very dark to me the first time I heard it. And then I was like, no, this is actually a truth. And, and being a gardener, it's like, we're going to die. The people close to us are going to die. We're going to lose our possessions in this process. I mean, this might sound really dark, but it's also very like matter of fact, like mm-hmm. we have to deal with our affairs. And I know in other interviews with people you've talked about when maybe your spouse is is in a terminal situation. Do you know all their passwords? Mm-hmm. Do you know who's paying who pays what bills? Right. You, like nobody wants to talk about this, but boy, trying to figure out how to get into their 
Gmail account when they're gone. Yeah, they're, they're, everybody they're, I know, especially if you manage an estate, as I did, who inherited an yeah. elder situation like that, that was the biggest and first sticking point. Yeah, and you just have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It can be in little bits. It can be, it doesn't have to be like, hey, next Saturday at two, let's talk about this. <laughs> you can just sort of throw the questions out here and there and see where they land. You know, some people do want to talk about this. Some people want to let you know, especially an elder in your family, mm -hmm. this is where I keep this. Mm -hmm. Or things in your home, that, that, you know, bracelet you bought in Mexico or that, you know, start making lists mm -hmm. of where does this go? And if you personally have a feeling about how you want things done the greatest gift i think that you can give a family member who might be saddled with your estate is your plans right for what you want exactly done. do you want music i i oh, went to a show yeah. a few years ago yeah i went to a show a few years ago and i was talking to a guy I, I know him from parties i don't know him really well but there were maybe six of us who had all gotten tickets to the same show and we were talking beforehand and somehow this came up about his death playlist and his wife just rolled her eyes and she said oh yeah it's like two days long and i was like really will you share it with me this is amazing this i said i have a couple songs i think i would like played at a service and he sent me his spotify list no uh, way and it did it could play for two days you could have an amazing you no know, way <laughs> Which is that in and of itself is like whether or not it's used for a two-day ceremony. Think yeah. about the CDs that were shared at weddings back in the day. For somebody yeah. to be like, this is my offering to you after I've gone. All the things right. that were meaningful to me that you can conjure and think about me as you listen. Right. How cool is that? I'm not sure if you've talked about Swedish death cleaning. I I've talked about it a lot, and I was just going to go oh. there. So just a quick aside, not in podcasts. So this is this is it'll make its podcast yeah. oh, feature good. here. So it started. I don't know where I discovered it, but I loved it in part because it sounds like my mother-in-law. It's this very super pragmatic, straightforward perspective that really helped unlock me with my own like trying because we've inherited so many dead people and now I have to right. rationalize not just my own purging but that and she has these really great ideas about like put this in a box and label it private and of course your kids will look at it but then say throw it away it? exactly she also does a thing like give your meaningful bracelets away now like bring your two daughters in and let them decide while you're still alive so it doesn't become this ridiculous fight but Claire if you'll recall where you and I had our Swedish death cleaning moment was because I wrote about it in one of my first blogs and you read it and were like lol because she has a delightful dildo section where she <laughs> talks about how you should probably purge down to your favorites so you don't completely scandalize everybody. So this woman is nothing but pragmatic. Or if you don't want to purge, make sure you just assign that closest <laughs> friend or sibling to say, you know, in that drawer Take that over box. there, you, you're the one. Yes. No matter who finds it, it'll 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 be a chuckle. It'll be laughter. It's it'll la be laughter. Laughter. laughter will be they'll be like, wow, okay. It's a good point. I do recommend that for laughter. About giving things away now, I've been going through a process recently and, and I like to call myself the family archivist, but mm. really I'm a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> like, however you want to label it. But I, I work in a record store in my teens and I have all these CDs and tapes and and the 20-somethings in my life, this is what they're into. They're into the cassette. I, I actually had a Sony Walkman. And to give it away now was so 
joyful. It felt so, I had a box of this stuff. I'm like, really? I'm like, you take whatever you want. Like you, you are suddenly a Paul Simon fan. Like here it is. Or here are all my, you know, bootleg U2 concerts. You've got it. Like, <laughs> because it's giving, it's so lovely. Well, you to get to enjoy ex- now. Yeah. You get to experience, you get to experience it while you're alive. And talk about it and tell the story and then send it on. I so, yeah. love that. And also to add to that end of life planning, Alua Arthur who has a website called Going With Grace, has a phenomenal outline for getting your affairs in order. And she's just an incredible presenter. I think you can also find her on YouTube. And and she just talks about it with wit and with realness. And she's an incredible educator. That's awesome. I'm now realizing I brought squeaky toys in the room here. Uh, you you had told me about her. You were like, oh my God, she blew my mind. And I think I have, yeah. have yet to add her stuff on the site, so I'll definitely add that. Let me just grab this one. one. The other thing that you brought up were the death cafes. Mm-hmm. So deathcafe.com is a website where you can go. It's very helpful in this pandemic age that most of the death cafes are online now. And what are they? They are meetings of people to have an agenda-free discussion about death. And, and can they're you, pretty organic. Yeah. yeah. Can you describe that? Even though I've poked around and I intend to attend some and I'm planning to interview a death doula who offers some, what I haven't totally been able to discern or wrap my head around is, are they for people who are sort of thinking existentially about their own death? Are they for caregivers who are going through death experiences? So do you have a sense, Claire, of who yeah, the audience is? Yeah, they're for everybody that's going to die or that's going to know someone that's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> who could that be? I, that wow, be? what a <laughs> narrow audience. How are they successful? No, I mean, I think, I think that's the sort of thing. Everyone experiences death. Okay. We're all going to die. And why don't we talk about it? Okay. Because so, in this culture, we don't. Right. And you I know? have to say, I'm offering this to my listeners. Like, I'm steeped in this. I right. love this shit. I love talking to anybody and anybody about death. And yet, when I went to hit sign up for a death cafe, yeah. I was like, oh, my, oh my human God. nervousness about who are they going to be and what do they think of me and what do right. I talk about? All that came up. They're all thinking the same thing. <laughs> and I, I think it's hard to explain what happens there because everyone is organic. Various people facilitate them, but they're not religious. They're not therapy either. And I imagine in some cases there will need to be a skilled facilitator to make sure people aren't going there looking for therapy exactly. from other people yeah i i think you just gotta pop in and see what happens and wow. no one's gonna judge you for being there and no one's gonna judge you for leaving what better <laughs> time than in the virtual age to say hey you know what monday nights between seven and eight I, it's a good time for me I, i'm just gonna check it out and you can find one locally you could find one maybe you're british and mm-hmm. you would rather actually go to one in london right that's what yeah. i found fascinating i couldn't go to the death cafe of the death doula i plan to interview and so i started looking at the site for well what fits my schedule to attend and it was international (laughs) it was like wow okay about seven years ago I started to go on these retreats with the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care Mm -hmm. and I did a year-long training there their whole mission is to bring compassion and wisdom to illness aging and death and they do it from a Buddhist Zen perspective but the folks in my training program, which was called Foundations in Contemplative Care, for the most part were therapists, hospice workers, palliative care docs, oncologists. Mm -hmm. And before I did this in-depth training with them, 
I would go on retreats with them. Mm. And I met some really phenomenal people that I've stayed in touch with. And one of the women, I'll never forget her saying it. She said, my husband always says to me, whenever you go away with all your death friends, you have so much fun. There's a lot of laughter in this process right. as we're exiting this world, right? And and to so. that point, I think uh, at face value, when people know what my blog and website is about, they get a little like, really? Okay, because we yeah. don't talk about it. Because and, we don't talk and about And then every stuff. last person that I talk to, we not only have a good time and express that fact but then the people who have that trepidation anytime I get to engage with them too directly they're like oh this feels good or this feels funny or I get it now so I think it's yeah. more the fear of and what I deeply appreciate about what you just said with your all your buddies is again this is where you just impress me not just as a practitioner, but as a human and as a friend, you're constantly learning. You're a lifelong learner. And these things that you do that I stumble across and you're like, oh, yeah, I've been there, done that. Oh, yeah, that person's my friend. Oh, that book, that's my... I was like, what haven't you done? <laughs> there are practitioners like you who are steeping themselves in this perspective, this compassionate care perspective, right? These programs. I get so many other newsletters now because you turn them on to me and it's fascinating to me. Half of them I don't pass on to my caregivers because they're for professionals. But then that makes me super excited as as a, a client of these professionals, whether it's going to be me someday or my mom, being like, oh, man, people are sitting around thinking about this stuff and trying yeah. to orient like this. Um, and people are thinking about how they want to die. Right. I mean, you and I also, we really bonded over Atul Gawande's being mortal mm -hmm. and the sort of questions of when you look at actually what physicians would do if they were diagnosed with certain types of cancers or if a loved one mm -hmm. was. Oftentimes, they would not prescribe the same chemo regimen that a patient exactly. might say, hey, I want, because they want to live better, maybe better for a shorter time than. Yeah, you know. that's that's so, a huge that line huge. of discussion. I don't know how much you've noticed it, Claire, but I'm hyper aware of it has become enormous in the last probably five years, and I'm sure in a large part due to his book, where there's all this attention on what your doctor is prescribing, either because you begged for it or they're perceived that you are going to insist on it or want it, is not what they're doing for themselves, is not what they're doing for their loved ones. I actually was super excited. My mom's doing this follow-up heart visits from when she had her near-death moment in the summer and she's actually like healed from their point of view with the medication they're giving her but this nurse practitioner said before you leave I'm, I'd like your permission to work on this special project of mine and it was all about this having mm -hmm. open conversations about who's your healthcare proxy what are your wishes etc 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 she wants to create data and, and progress. She does a follow-up call to the to patient to say, did you do the reading that I gave you? Have you made progress on it? I was like, no, that's cool, man. So yeah, yeah it's happening. Yeah, it is happening. And hopefully we're getting away from the sort of physician saves you. And if they don't mm -hmm. save you, they just you sort sue of ignore them. you. Be, yeah, <laughs> or you sue them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I had a really dear friend die six years ago, a 46-year-old guy, mm. did triathlons, also an acupuncturist, wife was a naturopath, should have been the help, eating mm -hmm. the kale and everything, should have been the eating the kale. On the planet. And he felt tired one day and he thought, I'll just run my blood. Oh, I'm anemic. Oh, I should probably have a colonoscopy, maybe uh. have an internal bleed. You know, he thought this through himself. Wow. Stage four colon <gasps> cancer. I feel like you were going through this, Claire, when we first met. I remember. Maybe this. we were, yeah. yeah. And he gave me the most incredible gift, which was being open 
to any question I have mm. about what is this like to be 46 and dying and knowing that the end is soon. Mm. And what do you need people to know? What do you need? You know, and I, they had asked me before he died, would I speak at his funeral? Mm -hmm. What, what would you like said? What would you like your daughter to know? And he spoke really candidly. I can't tell you how much we laughed through this process. I was asking, are you going to haunt me? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I want to know, show me a sign. We're all coming to our own terms. So we're all making sense out of it on our own and in community. And for him, before he died, he bought a case of Veuve Clicquot champagne. Oh, wow. And after this massive hotel ballroom service for him with hundreds of people, 70 of the closest people went up on this mountaintop in New oh. Hampshire. They brought the local militia and he and his brother-in-law used to make potato cannons. Oh my God. <laughs> so his wife had put his ashes into some potatoes. Oh my God. He and his brother and <laughs> <laughs> they shot the potatoes off the mountainside while we all stood there with glasses of champagne that he had purchased before he died and it was laughing until you were crying the boom was so loud the you know your bodies were shaking it was such a therapeutic goodbye and you know what don't think that you can't have just as good a celebration (laughs) like planet we we get into this well we should do it here because this is what we've always done at this funeral home there is so much out there Mm -hmm. on funeral on green funerals you don't need to be embalmed Mm -hmm. you don't need to be in a shellacked shellacked even a word but you know what i'm saying (laughs) coffin Mm -hmm. you can be in a woven basket i know in state by state but i do know in the state of new york that you can just be put in the ground to compost if you just google green funerals on there there's an incredible woman named amy cunningham in uh, new york city who's got a number of articles and NPR interviews, we're finally getting out of we've always done it this way to Mm -hmm. to really thinking about how do I want my loved ones to celebrate me? Mm -hmm. How do I want to die? Where do I want to be? And it's a generational thing, too. With the older generation, there's so much deference and there's expectation that they either planned or they know what they want. And it's this very traditional thing to your Mm -hmm. point, blah, 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 blah. When the first person died, it was so tragic. They had so much money. She died miserably, hopped up on drugs in a nursing home, and she did not need to. And because they were childless, that happened because I didn't know that I could or should take the authority role. Once that did happen, his end of life was polar opposite because his village of friends swept in because I I pushed these conversations you're describing. We were very forthright. We talked explicitly about what he wanted and what he didn't want. And that's happened with every parent all the way down the lines. A couple things I wanted to name was that with my mom, I've tried to be as explicit or forthright, et cetera. She's an entirely different temperament. So you have to meet the person where they are to get to that potato can and goodness. And as long as you're honoring their process, like for my mom, she has this vague idea that she does want to be part of her parents' plot because she can't really picture just floating out there in any other form. So I'm working my ass off to make that happen. But she's not like so concerned that she needs to know it's in place or if it doesn't happen. So I'm I'm just I'm both honoring her vague idea and then I know I have permission to like do whatever I need to do because she yeah. doesn't want to inconvenience me, right? But I 
I take your point that I think that the biggest tragedies I've experienced and I've watched people experience is when these conversations never happen and there's no sense of what somebody wanted and there's no sense of how to honor them. And I think the last point I wanted to make is you hear this happening in such beautiful ways with people who die young because you're forced into having a reconciliation with something that wasn't supposed to happen. With elder deaths, there's this notion that it's the slow slog to the end, and then you go to an assisted living, and then you go to a nursing home, and then you die in the middle of the night with nobody there. And it does not have to be that way at all. It's this modern manufactured stage. And my mom and I have already talked many, many times. It's the first thing I say to her doctors, like, hi, how are you? And by the way, she's going to die at home. Meaning, I'm not like the second that she's uh, terminal, she's coming to our house, period, full stop. We're not just like doing this plant her somewhere else because that's what the culture says you do with an old semi-dying person. And it changes the conversation immediately so that we're not just in this holding pattern of elderliness. And I honestly feel like it's made her energized and vibrant in a way because she doesn't have this unknown what's going to happen to me yeah like factory yeah. future and yeah. i and i want to i know no not everybody has the opportunity to do that and it would massively stress our little family system too and yet still to have had those conversations and to know that's our plan is really freeing because then every time the phone rings i'm not doing a what if like is grandma going to the nursing home now what's the next steps um because we've already talked it to and, and lightly planned it for as much as you can plan these things I think we should talk about the photos. I think that as part of our dislike of talking about death, the idea of taking pictures mm-hmm. while we're dying is also Taboo. something that people shy away from. My husband always says one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't photograph the tattoo on his father's hands. Mm. And he'll often describe them to me. But he doesn't, because of where they were on his fingers, he doesn't really have photos of them. Mm. And it's a regret. And, and why describe it so, it so people understand? What's the regret for him? He wants to be able to remember them and mm. see them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have a lot of ink now. Right? <laughs> I, so, me but, too. <laughs> yeah. So that is just something to think about. Mm-hmm. And know? and let's, let's play with that because you and I have discussed this in detail. It would have started with my father. This was such a bizarro mix of stories. I had a toddler who would, actually was five, who would often hand my phone in the car to be like, your kid, you can play with that, entertain yourself. My father had died three hours away from me in a nursing home. We knew it was coming. I was supposedly on the phone with him. My little joke is like, yeah, right. He was dead as a doornail, but she was like, talk to your father. (laughs) He's going. So immediately after, I was like, and now please send me a picture because there was something so necessary for me, to your point, Claire. I just needed to see him. I needed to not know that he was gone, but just see the after dad. And and that was literally the last time I would see him in any sense because I wouldn't be there before they took him away, etc. So she sends this picture of a guy who's decidedly dead, like undeniably dead. Every time I flip through my phone, I'm like, whoa, there's dad again. So I have to be careful because if anybody happens to see this picture, I will probably traumatize them because you can definitely tell it's a dead guy. So that was the first instance. And then I did a talk on the elder care stuff at work, which turned into this podcast and everything else. And the dirty little secret is when I was trying to pick what picture I showed of the dog who was put down at home, our son participated, we chose the moment and all that. 
that dog, unlike my father, looked the same dead as he looked alive. So I'm pretty sure it was a picture of a dead dog that I had in my presentation, <laughs> not a sweet, sleepy, drugged up one. So I have multiple pictures, even the, the mouse that I blogged about recently that I was dropper feeding and he eventually died. I have a picture of the dead mouse on my phone. So I fully relate to this and I found it enormously helpful for me to integrate the losses that we've had. So tell me more about your personal experiences. I think that in the moment, we're maybe not sure how much these pictures will mean to us mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. I, I've shared with you that Zuni, the, the working dog who went to, you know, 18 years of age, she really did die of old age. She died of multiple air, organ failure. And on her last night on earth, she just looked at me and wouldn't come inside. Oh. And I slept outside with her. It was oh a July night. And my husband took pictures through the window of me sleeping on this a little outdoor sofa that we have. Mm. And she was on the ground next to me and my arm was draped over her. Mm. And she was actively dying. And I remember when he took it, I thought, oh, like, why would you take that? And then <laughs> I see that picture a lot. And it doesn't, it just reminds me of her passage, mm-hmm. which I was really fortunate to have an animal live to a very old age and have a whole arc of life. Mm-hmm. So Claire, let's do speed round. I think it would make people smile because you get to do that none of the rest of us ever get to do in it. It's super cool. Start asking questions and I'm sure anecdotes will follow. (laughs) All right, Claire, what is the weirdest animal you've ever done acupuncture on? (sighs) Taper. Baird's taper. They're really cute when they're little. They're fuzzy and striped. And what did you have to do? A constipated Baird's taper (laughs) that the... That the vet staff at the Zoo New England called me in on it. And, and, uh, what needle gets the poop out? Lower back. Lower so back. Lo- lower thoracic and lumbar spine. <laughs> because this is where the nerves that innervate with all of his digestive organs. All right. You go. can try this at home. Needles in the lower back for constipation. Okay. Well, what's... I will say, I don't know how, I mean, it seems like you guys can go to some crude places and lots of parts yeah. of death are crude. So I will say that after I remove the needles, the vet started backing away and she said, Claire, look out. <laughs> and the Baird's taper proceeded to spray me in a way that a cat might spray you. Oh, oh. And um, yeah, the really funny thing was that after this visit to the zoo, I went from my office, I mainly treat human clothes, to my, I'm going to consult at the zoo clothes, <laughs> which was scrubs. I was going to go to this very shishi gym over in Chestnut Hill. (laughs) I realized that if I go for this free week, which is really they're trying to get new membership, Mm -hmm. I cannot go in the state that I'm in. (laughs) I cannot walk in there knowing that I have been sprayed sprayed. by a bear taper. That does not happen. But I've had a number of penguins and sea turtle, a lot of sea turtle. What now? What's happening to these poor sea turtles that they need help? These sea turtles get stranded in at this time of year, in primarily November, December, on the inner cape because the sea temperature goes down oh. and they get what we call cold stunned. So oh, yeah. they kind of lose their ability to navigate and they end up floating to the surface. They'll often get frostbite, pneumonia, Aww. and they'll end up being at the New England Aquarium and. They call me in to help with their recovery. My favorite story, he the, could not open his jaw. So they were speeding, oh, they were feeding him with a little dropper. Yeah. Are we talking about this? And so just like, you know, with people, when the jaw is tight, everything, the upper neck, the shoulders, and I use points on his upper shoulders. First treatment went well. I came in, they said, oh, he's already doing better. Second treatment, he was eating and opening his jaw. 
And the rescue staff said to me, oh, yeah, and we're doing physical therapy with him. I said, great. Who's your physical therapist? Thinking, you know, in all my work with the zoo and the aquarium, they bring in all these human practitioners, cardiologists, dentists, pediatricians for the gorillas. So I thought, oh, who's the PT working with all these animals? And the guy looked at me and he said, oh, no, we just feed him calamari. (laughs) I said, do you know how many people would like to just chew on calamari for their TMJ <laughs> So can you give us a sense what it's like a, a day in the life in your office when there's reason for you to come out and see meh, a penguin sitting in your chair? Can you tell I me about that day? I have had various aquariums bring penguins to my office. And they sit in the, the people. Ch- the, my, my human patients don't tend to see them. <laughs> Although people around town have said, Claire, I saw penguins going into your office. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> uh, are they walking around doing their thing? They have walked up and down, you know, the floor. <gasps> and I've walked in the same hall as a penguin. You have. You've said I have these white leather seats in the waiting room that... <laughs> I put little the chucks, the pee pee pads, basically, yeah. <laughs> on top of them, and we've sat penguins in them. And, yeah. Aww, wow. Yeah. What's the biggest, yes. weirdest, loudest, weird, funniest? Warthog. Really? The first time the zoo called me, this was like 2004, and I had just come back from teaching acupuncture in Uganda. And while I was in East Africa, as you do when you're as, as one does, as one does, <laughs> when you're in East Africa, you go on safari. And when I got back, I had actually gotten in contact with the head of the zoo and said, this giraffe at the time, Bo, had all kinds of stuff in the press about hmm. his wasting disease. At that time, I was treating a lot of folks with HIV who had difficulty absorbing nutrients hmm. and digestion, either because of the, the disease or because of side effects of the meds. We realized there was absolutely no safe way to administer a treatment, which was going to be on his back and his legs. Wow. And she said to me, you know, Claire, while you're here, we have this geriatric ornery warthog. I quote, we have a geriatric ornery warthog. Would you consider treating him? I treated this animal every Thursday morning for years. And most of what we did was acupressure. Okay. We We did points on his back, but... It was such a nice asset. I treated his partner as well. It was Priscilla and Elvis, <laughs> friends of the zoo. Yeah. I always say in my next life, Clara, I want to come back as you. I want to live your life. It's <laughs> pretty amazing. Quite a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. From stand-up to Uganda to I Warthog. I think you're doing pretty well being you right now, Aww. sharing all of this important Aww. stuff. Well, mutual admiration society. Stop it. <laughs> I did not set out to do a podcast. I, the podcasting is sort of taken over because I find it super fun. <laughs> all this year has been people like you who are my buddies and my friends. But the conversations that you all are bringing to me are crazy powerful. You don't need to talk to Hollywood movie stars to have a interesting conversation, you know? Because we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. Are you still going? Your turn. Oh, okay. Let's see. Follow my monthly podcast for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your irreverent radio. In between, you can find support, education, and hundreds of resources on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. Sign up for my newsletter to receive my latest insights, anecdotes, audio, and ever-growing list of shit. Performing my theme music is my mom and my son. My production partner is Michelle Rado of Flying Pig Audio. And I am Irreverent Rachel. 
leaving you with a glimpse into the kinds of conversations I enjoy with Claire when I'm on her acupuncture table. Now, go embrace your own irreverence. Yay, I got it. Mostly what will be different is, especially you and I, we're like, but if I act like my normal self, then I will talk over you, and then my listeners don't get to hear goodness. So what I say to people in front of the podcast is I will be inordinately silent (laughs) and don't let it confuse you. We've discovered the puppy has been pissing outside various doors or places when he wants to be somewhere. This whole week I'm like, why are the walls closing in on me? And everything smells. And you know when the light hits a floor and you're like, that is a previous (laughs) dog pee stain that we've all been walking through for however many days. Okay, so that just might I take it you're going to edit that, yeah. (laughs) You never know what I'm going to keep in in the outtakes, Claire. I should run and pee before we do this. (laughs) Yes, you do that. And I will take my earphones out so you don't hear me say, I killed them. I killed them all. (laughs) Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Oh, no, wait. I know exactly what you're talking about. That guy. Did I just see some news about him? Yes, because he's being sentenced. Yes. And they were doing a documentary and it's always been this question as to whether or not he's killed all his wives. Yes. So I'm going to take these out so you don't hear any of my secrets. (laughs) 